you would, please turn with me to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. This psalm is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's infallible, it's inerrant, and it's given for the profit of our souls. And I'm going to go and ask you to give me a congregational amen to that. Amen. Amen. Now, I know you know that. I know you know this is given by inspiration of God. But it's very important to remind you of that truth. Because the words of this psalm are very, very difficult. They're very hard words. This is one of what is known as an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is calling upon God to pour out His wrath upon fellow human beings. And that is what this particular psalm is doing. Notice it in verse 6. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be cut uh, in pieces. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes, and like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Look at the violence of verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Is that hard? Is that difficult to wrap your mind around? It is for all of us, isn't it? It offends our sensibilities in some ways, doesn't it? And yet, this is God's Word. And we have got to bow ourselves down to it and say, God is wiser than I am, and God is more loving than I am, and I have to trust that His Word is truth. What's particularly difficult is how do you reconcile a text like this, a prayer like this, with Jesus' words that we're supposed to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to ask to return blessing for cursing and things like that. How do we reconcile such harsh words with such things? Well, the number one thing you should not do, no offense to our dear dispensationalist brothers, but don't do what the dispensationalists do. Oh, that's Old Testament. That's the magic wand by which we get rid of the Old Testament. No, that that doesn't get us out of the problem because the New Testament commands us to sing the Psalms. And when it commands us to sing the Psalms, it says, oh, except, of course, not Psalm 58. No, we are to, to sing these things. We're to meditate upon these things. And as a matter of fact, you realize that the New Testament itself has imprecations inside of it. There are places where curses are called down. For example, Judas Iscariot in the New Testament, when he is given over to eternal damnation, do you realize it's the fulfillment of two imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament? Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. In fact, the scriptures quote, the New Testament scriptures quote those psalms to say this was in fulfillment of what God had said here. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that there were those who were slandering him and misrepresenting what he was saying, and he says, quote, their condemnation is just. In Galatians 5.12, Paul is addressing sacramentalism, the idea that circumcision could save you. And he literally says at the end, he says, I could wish that those who trouble you, these false heretics who are teaching you these things, I could wish they'd cut themselves off. Do you know what he means? He means, I wish they would castrate themselves so their heresy will die with them. 
And yet the Spirit of God moved him to write those things. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, right after Paul says what he says to Timothy that we read in the call to worship this morning, Paul speaks of a man named Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm. And he says, quote, May the Lord repay him according to his works. He's calling down cursing upon this man. So it's not something that's foreign to the New Testament. Let's look a little more closely at Psalm 58. And I'm taking a little more time to explain it to you because I want you to wrap your mind around this. It's obvious from verses 3, 4, and 5 that this is not just your garden variety center that Paul is spe- or that David is speaking of here. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. In other words, these are not people who don't have any knowledge of God's truth. We preached to them. We told them about being recon- their need to be reconciled to God. The gospel was heard in their presence. They were given an, an olive branch of mercy over and over and over again. And not just it wasn't just that they were given some preacher who wasn't very good. They, they had preachers who were eloquent, who spoke skillfully, like Apollos, the silver-tongued orator, or like a, the, the, the sonorous voice of a George Whitfield. They've heard some of the best preaching you could ever imagine, and yet what do they do? They stop up their ears willingly. They refuse to hear it. They've been given great light, and they sin against that light. And they begin every opportunity to repent, and they refuse. And so David says, the time has come for judgment. And he cries out for them to be judged. And I believe that's exactly what Paul's doing with Alexander the coppersmith. He had given the man every opportunity to repent and, make, and, and be right, reconciled to God, and yet the man refused. And so the point came where he gives him over to judgment. Now, as he does this, I think it's helpful. To, let me note something about verse 8. You struggle with that statement, Let a, like a stillborn child of a woman, may they not see the sun. Understand, he doesn't say, may they be stillborn children. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking for their children to be stillborn, simply that this is how they will be. In other words, they need to die. That's what he's crying out here. That still struggle, We struggle with that in our own sensibilities. But let's remember something. Here's a, here's a question for you. Who loves sinners more, you or God? The Spirit who moved this, loves them infinitely more than you do. So you and I cannot sit in judgment upon the Lord and say, you're too harsh. We have to submit ourselves and say, the God who loves and knows better than I do has moved these things to be written. But I want you to know something else. How do we, verse 10, how do we understand verse 10? The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, do you remember an incident where Jesus preached to a group of Samaritans, but his face was set towards Jerusalem. And the Bible says that the Samaritans did not receive his word. Do you remember what James and John said to him? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? We'll be glad to do that for you, Lord. Right? You remember what Jesus' response to that was? He rebuked them. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. And do you remember what he said next? For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Do you hear what he said? I've come for a specific reason, and your attitude is incongruent with the reason I came. Here's my point. 
Jesus came the first time as the Savior of the world. When he comes the second time, what's he going to come as? The judge of the world. And here's my point. We are living in the wake of Jesus' first coming. We're awaiting his second coming in our future. And right now, what should you desire for sinners? You should desire mercy. You should desire their salvation. But when Jesus comes as the judge, and he casts out the wicked and they're thrown into into hell, and then there's nothing but a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, will you not rejoice in the manifestation of his justice in the wake of his second coming? And I think that something of what's going on here is it's anticipating the second coming. That when God has, in other words, our confession says it this way, on the day of judgment, God's grace will be magnified and glorified in the salvation of the elect, but his glorious justice will be magnified in the damnation of the reprobate. And that's what it's speaking of here, that we as God's people will join in that rejoicing. And notice in verse 11, so that men may say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. So this is exalting the justice of God. And it's, David's not saying, here, send me as your instrument. I will judge the, the, you know, the, the wicked. He's crying out to God, vengeance is yours. You judge the wicked. So bear these things in mind as we think through this psalm because it is for us, to, for our profit of our souls to think about these things. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a victim of David, do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can fill the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. May the Lord add his richest blessing to both the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated.